Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Shackman. In just two months' time, we will mark 17 years since the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, certainly the longest single military effort in U.S. history. Our original goal was to destroy al-Qaeda and oust the Taliban that were protecting them. Since that time, a great deal has happened, and mostly the law of unintended consequences has been the victor. Security and political stability still seem elusive. U.S. government understanding of the country and the region still seems sketchy at best, and corruption still seems rampant. And even with all of that, some think real peace is still possible. Where we are today and what's really happening on the ground and what the U.S. can do, even if it had the will and competence to do it, are our subjects today as I'm joined by our guest, Laurel Miller. Laurel Miller is a senior foreign policy expert at RAND, She served as the U.S. State Department's deputy and then acting special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, overseeing U.S. diplomatic efforts in the region. She's been an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and also at Georgetown Law. She's been a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs and senior advisor to the U.S. Special Envoy for the Balkans. She's been directly involved in peace negotiations in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Macedonia, and it is my pleasure to welcome Laurel Miller to Radio Who, What, Why. Laurel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. As we talk about policy and the state of affairs in Afghanistan today, and look at how long this has gone on, has the reality of fatigue from the war, from the politics of it, does that war fatigue play a role today in how we move forward from where we are now in Afghanistan? Well, I think the idea of war fatigue does reflect a certain reality in that uh, among the Afghans, certainly who've experienced not just 17 years of war, but 40 years of continuous warfare, uh, there is unquestionably a desire for a more peaceful life in the country. I think the the question of war fatigue as it applies to the United States is a bit more difficult to measure given that the war doesn't actually affect that many Americans. There may be a fatigue among policymakers in the sense of uh, wishing to be done with the American involvement in Afghanistan. But I think it's hard to say that there's a fatigue among uh, the American population at large or even the American political class at large. I also think the issue of war fatigue can be overstated in that there are uh, many wars that last a very long time. Uh, and if you look back even 10 years ago, say, there was talk about war fatigue in Afghanistan and among the U.S. and its allies. And yet here we are 10 years later, still involved there. The other part of that, of course, is the way in which the situation has changed so dramatically over the course of 17 years. And things that might have looked like a way out or a policy solution might no longer be the case, as the state of affairs has constantly changed so much. Talk a little bit about that and the difficulty of trying to address the issues today in the context of where we are today, but also aware of what the history has been and understanding how things have changed in that context? Well, there are ways in which the situation has certainly changed over 17 years, but there are many ways in which it hasn't changed over the last 17 years. 
conditions in Afghanistan have been modified as a result of the American and NATO presence in the country and the and certainly as a result of the extraordinary volume of resources and financial resources poured into the country but from if you look at the situation from an Afghan perspective, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's been 40 years of continuous warfare. And the last 17 years uh, is, from an Afghan perspective, can be considered a phase in that long war rather than a distinctly separate war that has a distinctly separate trajectory. Uh, again, looking at the situation from an Afghan perspective, there are many who would see the United States' involvement in the country very differently from the way the United States has seen it. Uh, they, not all Afghans, but uh, for a significant portion of Afghans, they see the United States as having intervened in and in taking a side in an ongoing civil war. Whereas the United States looks at its involvement in Afghanistan largely uh, and predominantly in terms of the reaction and response to 9-11 and the effort to go after al-Qaeda and its hosts in Afghanistan, setting aside this, this larger Afghan picture of the conflict. Uh, So, you know, I think one of the reasons why um, the United States seems to be stuck in Afghanistan and stuck with a stalemate in the country is because of this longer trajectory of the history of the conflict and this larger context uh, of which the U.S. involvement related to 9-11 is just one component. And in that context, then, does the U.S. have much of a role to play in trying to bring peace to, to the region today? The U.S. has been both a stabilizing force in Afghanistan and a disruptive force in Afghanistan. Uh, the, the U.S. has a role to play in trying to forge a more peaceful future in the country, but it's not a role that's going to be played largely on the battlefield in that it is extremely unlikely, both looking at this from the perspective of what's happened over the last 17 years and the current situation right now, it's extremely unlikely, if not impossible, for the United States to defeat the Taliban at any realistic level of U.S. resources. What the U.S. is capable of doing is shoring up the stalemate that currently exists in the battlefield on Afghanistan. Um, But for the United States to forge a more peaceful future in Afghanistan, that's that's going to have to be achieved through diplomacy and political negotiations rather than uh, vanquishing the Taliban militarily. And talk a little bit about what that diplomacy looks like. One of the things we often hear is the degree to which perhaps the Taliban can even be brought into the political mainstream. Talk a little bit about it from a diplomatic perspective. Yeah, there have been fits and starts of U.S. efforts to 
uh, to promote a peace process in Afghanistan over quite a number of years now. Uh, beginning around uh, 2011, the U.S. introduced into its policy really one of the few changes in, in American policy over the 17 years was introducing this idea of trying to negotiate with the Taliban and uh, and forge a political resolution of the conflict there. But as I said, that diplomatic effort has proceeded in fits and starts without ever being uh, truly prioritized over the military effort in Afghanistan. Very recently, there seems to have been some shift in uh, American policy, or at least in the rhetoric of American policy, towards a heightened interest in seeking a negotiated uh, conclusion to the conflict. Um, whether there is going to be a fully uh, resourced, robust diplomatic effort to bring that to fruition is another question, though there are some signs of increasing intent on the U.S. side to really try to make that happen. In particular, there have been reports recently that the administration may appoint a special envoy for Afghanistan whose mission would be to try to negotiate a peace deal. Now, whether that will work uh, and whether the Taliban will agree to be involved in a peace process and reach a conclusion that brings them into the political mainstream is another question. Um, that's a proposition that has to be tested through the diplomacy of negotiations. I think that probably uh, that is possible, but you can't know for certain until the effort is underway. The overlay to that, I guess, is the degree to, to which ISIS is having an impact and the fact that mm -hmm. it's both the enemy of the Afghan government and the Taliban. Right. I mean, there are ways in which the uh, ISIS presence in Afghanistan both complicates this picture and, you know, perhaps perversely creates a bit of an opportunity mm -hmm. in this picture. The way in which it complicates the picture is this ISIS presence, which emerged in the beginning of 2015, adds another challenge on the battlefield in Afghanistan and adds another risk for the United States given that ISIS does have a, a global and transnational uh, set of ambitions. Uh, so it's a challenge for the United States. It's a challenge for Afghanistan to deal with this presence. The way in which it's, as I said, you know, somewhat perversely a potential opportunity is that it is, as you mentioned, a common enemy of the United States, of the Afghan government and of the Taliban, which does not share the ISIS ideology. And so, you know, this suggests that part of a peace deal might be um, might be capitalizing on that common ground uh, to uh, to have some common purpose and and action among those three elements, the United States, the Taliban, and the Afghan government in going after ISIS. And does the Taliban have the ability, even if they wanted to, do they have enough control to bring down the level of violence if, in fact, that was what was desired? Probably. 
But again, this is something that would have to be tested through a peace process. One of the Taliban's comparative advantages uh, over the years since the insurgency arose around 2005, 2006 time period uh, is that they have worked very hard to maintain their coherence uh, and their institutional integrity. And they've done this by creating a balance between centralized uh, control and authority and decentralized activity and a considerable degree of autonomy of operational action given to the rank, the, the commanders at the local level. So they have been very reluctant to take any steps that would compromise their uh, their coherence because that's been, as I said, uh, their significant comparative advantage in this uh, in this conflict. Um, what that suggests to me is that they will be very careful in any early moves in particular that they would take in a peace process because they would not want to um, disrupt the overall consensus within the organization. Uh, and I think they would be reluctant to make any moves in, in reaching final agreements in a peace process that would compromise their uh, their consensus and cohesion. Um, but, you know, if they succeed in maintaining that consensus, they, I think, can be expected to, on the whole, be able to hold their fighters to any peace deal that they make. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's anyone who thinks that a peace process in Afghanistan will resolve 100% of the violence in the country. Um, that's too tall in order to expect, but significantly reducing the violence and ending the major part of the insurgency is something that probably can be achieved. The other elephant in the room, so to speak, in all of this is the role of Pakistan. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Pakistan has been a supporter uh, of the Afghan Taliban. Um, their reasons for supporting the Afghan Taliban are, are somewhat complex, but essentially come down to their um, views of India and their what they see as an existential contest uh, or competition between India and Pakistan. Uh, the Pakistanis want to see an Afghanistan that is friendly to Pakistan and not friendly to India, um, lest, pa- lest Afghanistan become a, uh, a you know, fertile ground for, for Indian activity against uh, Pakistan that would leave Pakistan feeling encircled by its arch enemy. So Pakistan seeks to have influence, not necessarily control over politics in Afghanistan, but seeks to have influence in Afghanistan, especially in the areas that are contiguous across its very long border with Afghanistan. It's also, you know, never believed that the U.S., uh, that the U.S., uh, conflict in Afghanistan that the U.S. military mission in Afghanistan would succeed. And so it's been hedging its uh, 
bets all these years. Pakistan has to be part of the solution in Afghanistan, at least in the sense of uh, accepting and acquiescing in a political solution there. And can it play a role in effectuating that political solution? It can. It can play a role in applying some pressure to the Taliban to negotiate in good faith uh, because it still provides safe haven for the Taliban leadership, which is not entirely resident in Pakistan, but is uh, to an important extent resident in Pakistan and has family members there. So it can apply pressure and it can also uh, it can also help substantively in shaping the 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 contours of a political settlement in Afghanistan. It can't have a controlling share of a peace process if this is going to work, but there's no long-term solution to stability in Afghanistan over Pakistan's objections. Pakistan has to be at a minimum accepting of Uh, any solutions that are created in Afghanistan because Pakistan is going to be next door to Afghanistan forever. Uh, It is a a wealthier and institutionally and militarily stronger country than Afghanistan. And it has the capability to either support stability there or undermine stability there. One of the things that seems to be a part of all of this, it's almost like a low-grade fever that's a part of this entire region, is the degree of corruption that always seems to be there. Mm. Talk about that and the impact that it has on policy. I mean, Afghanistan is not unique in having deeply embedded corruption, but it is by all of the available measures one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Um, it's, I would say, you know, the, the, the main effect that this has in terms of the conflict is in eroding uh, popular support in the country for the government. It's very difficult for the government in Afghanistan to win the, you know, the to out and out win the hearts and minds battle in the country um, in light of the very significant levels of corruption. That doesn't mean that there's no corruption in the Taliban and that the Taliban is more popular than the government, which it isn't. Um, But this phenomenon certainly erodes Uh, popular support for the government in Afghanistan. And frankly, I mean, this is something that's going to be a multi-generational challenge. There are no quick fixes to the problem of corruption at the scale that it exists in Afghanistan. And uh, looking at the experiences of other countries around the world that have dealt with significant levels of corruption, uh, it's very clear that there's certainly no fix that the United States can apply to this problem. And even with uh, the greatest possible will on the part of Afghan leaders, it it will still be a multi-generational effort. Are there things after all these years that the United States still doesn't understand about Afghanistan, Pakistan, and, and dealing in this region? Hmm. Uh, 
Yes. I mean, it depends on exactly what you mean by by the United States. I mean, even within the government, there are the U.S. government. There are people who have been dealing with these issues for a long time and have uh, significant expertise. And then there are policymakers who come and go. And over the course of 17 years, there have been a lot of decision makers who have come and gone, who have had to go through the cycles of of learning and relearning the same lessons over and over again. I think if I were to point to, at a you know, policy level, one of the key problems in understanding, it goes back to a comment I made earlier, which is how you look at what this conflict is and what the nature of the conflict is. And the U.S. has, uh, policymakers have tended to look at it from the per, you know from our own lens our own viewpoint of what happened on 9/11 why we initially invaded the country why we toppled the regime um, what we thought we were doing in aligning ourselves with certain figures in the country and not with others and from an Afghan perspective that looks very different. Again, there's not just one Afghan perspective, just like there's not just one American perspective. Um, but there were certainly Afghans who, uh, who took advantage of the American intervention there and allied with Americans for their own purposes that were not about U.S. national security. Uh, and there were others who looked at the American intervention as a taking sides in an ongoing conflict. And from a Pakistani perspective, it looks rather different, too. I mean, Pakistan looks at the situation in Afghanistan from the perspective of its own national security interests, which it conceives of differently than the United States looks at security interests in the region. And from a Pakistan perspective, uh, I'm not justifying it, I'm just to explain it, you know, they see the American intervention as, again, as sort of another phase, uh, another phase of American activity, another phase of international involvement in the region that will come and go and that they will be left with the longer term consequences of American action and, you know, holding the bag, if you will, uh, in terms of the outcomes there. Uh, and that causes them to calculate um, the risks and benefits of really supporting the U.S. mission there in a very different way than the U.S. would wish. For the Afghan people, what did they see, if anything, in terms of gains, in terms of security or political stability? There are, I mean, unquestionably there are Afghans, particularly uh, in the urban areas who have benefited from the American and not just American, but broader international community involvement in the country. Um, There are many more children in school. There are many more women who have been educated. There's been better access to health care. There has been economic growth fueled by foreign resources, but there has been economic growth and access to media, um, indigenous Afghan media. It's a more open society uh, with more opportunity uh, than there had been um, certainly during the Taliban period and the Civil War period that preceded that. Now, I mean, some of those advances have begun to erode as the 
American presence there began to diminish and the the volume of dollars began to diminish. And you've seen Afghans be one of the, the main groups for instance, that's been emigrating, uh, or migrating um, illegally uh, to Europe, and in particular um, because of continuing insecurity and economic problems there. So I'm not I'm not trying to create an overly rosy picture, but you know the the inputs of American resources have produced outputs in terms of um, benefits, as I said, in particular for for urban Afghans. For many Afghans in the rural areas, uh, I think little has changed. And, uh, and when you talk about advancements for women in the country, I think you do very much have to distinguish between the experiences of urban Afghan women, <clears throat> excuse me, and rural Afghan women for whom life has, uh, has not changed greatly in the last 17 years. Um, but the United States didn't invade the country in order to develop it economically and Im- improve life for Afghans as right. beneficial as that may be for Afghans. I mean, the, the point of all this nation building was to try to deal with the security problem and to try to put the Afghan government on a footing in which would enable it to attend to its own security requirements. And uh, I think there was a certain amount of uh, naivete in thinking that that could be done on a, a rapid timetable. There have been some localized ceasefires recently, mm. and there is more talk, it seems, about some kind of a diplomatic effort toward, towards a peace process. Why now? What are the forces that are at play that are driving this at this particular time? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the forces on the American side, unquestionably, is that uh, we have a president that a year, just a year ago, on the one hand, recommitted to the mission in Afghanistan by announcing a policy of somewhat stepped up military activity. Um, But on the other hand, in announcing that policy, said uh, quite openly, that it really wasn't what he had wanted to do or originally intended to do, leaving everyone with the impression that he had a great deal of reluctance in that recommitment to the American strategy there. And uh, I think that, plus a couple of other uh, comments that the president has made since then, have um, shaken not just Afghan, but uh, American uh, policymakers and bureaucrats' confidence in how enduring this American commitment really is to Afghanistan and concerned that, frankly, the president could choose to pull the plug rather abruptly on the mission. Even those who think that uh, the mission has gone on too long and there should be a winding up of the engagement there or a negotiation and or a negotiation of peace uh, don't I, for the most part, think that that should happen abruptly, that should happen in a deliberate manner. So I suspect that this has been one of the the factors on the American side in getting uh, many more people across the U.S. government, particularly in the security establishment, to be talking about uh, a peace process. I think, you know, there may also be uh, the kind of fatigue that we talked about uh, in the beginning among American policymakers. There are a lot of other uh, 
hotspots around the world, a lot of other American priorities around the world. And while you know, the United States could afford to continue the mission in Afghanistan at the current level, uh, there are people who ask, you know, why and to what end? I mean, what, what does it really mean to just be doing the same thing over and over again for another 10, 17, 20 years? Laurel Miller, she's a senior foreign policy expert at Rand Corporation. Laurel, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.